And our text tonight, as is in the bulletin, will be verses 16 and 17 of Zephaniah 3. Um, Zephaniah was a prophet. Chapter 1 of the prophecy, verse 1, tells us uh, he prophesied in the days of Josiah. And Josiah was the last God-fearing king of Judah. So he's prophesying about 25 years before Judah is going to be destroyed by Babylon. And he's prophesying in rebuke against the sins, the apostasy of God's people, forsaking God and serving idols. If you want a summary of their sins, he gives a summary in the first seven verses of chapter 3, and that really boils down to verse 2 of chapter 3. She, that is God's bride on earth, the church, obeyed not the voice. She received not corrupt correction. They turned from the word of God. Um, this prophecy especially focuses on the day of the Lord. So in chapter 3, when we read the words, in that day, when we read the word then, or at that time, in this chapter, he's referring to the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord here is simply the day of Jesus Christ, foreshadowed when Judah was returned from captivity from Babylon to her own land, but that day of Jesus Christ is the day of the coming of Christ, his birth, his death and resurrection, his ascension, and his return. Ultimately, the day of the Lord is his return in judgment and for the redemption of the church. And then one more thing before we read the chapter. I said verses 1 through 7, just a little division of the chapter for you. Verses 1 through 7 will be a summary of the sins of the church. Verse 8 will be the prediction of judgment upon the nations. And then verses 9 through 20, these are great and precious promises that God brings to his redeemed people in the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 3. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bone till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste. Let none pass by. Their cities are destroyed, so that there is no man that there is none inhabitant. And I said, surely, thou wilt fear me, thou wilt receive instruction, so their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever I punished them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. 
Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured, devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people of a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thy enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. And to Zion, Let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth and gather her that was driven out. I will get them praise and fame in every land, where they have been put to shame. At that time, I will bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. May God sanctify his word to our hearts. Let's read our text one more time. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, Let not thine hand be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the words of our text are some of the most beautiful words that you will ever hear from God on this side of the grave. 
The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks of the time that he was taken to heaven in a vision. And that in that vision that was given to him in heaven, he saw things of which it was not lawful for him to speak. There will be great and wonderful words of God that he will speak to you when you arrive in heaven. But until that time, you will not hear a more wonderful word than this word that he speaks tonight to you and to this church. Jehovah tells us that over the joy that he finds in his heart for the church, he is singing a song. He sings in joy over his church. When your heart is filled with joy and is bursting, you sing. So also God, his heart, when it is filled with joy, and it is, sings. And he sings over his church in Jesus Christ. When he thinks of you, he breaks into singing. I saw this verse of Holy Scripture 15, 16 years ago in an older church. I saw it in the narthex of that old church on a stand or pedestal in glass case. And the Bible, the old Bible, was opened to this verse. And the intention was that everyone who had entered the church would read these beautiful words of God that he sings over the church. How fitting. When we enter into the church, that we are mindful that we have not only come to sing praises to him, but we have come to the place over which he sings. He sings in joy over his church. He will joy over thee with singing. God says he's singing right now over his church, also here by his grace, also over you. I thought that this would be a very fit word for us to hear tonight on the day that we remember the glorious resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for we know that this is all true because of him and what he has done for us. But I thought it would also be a fit word to bring because as a denomination and as a congregation, we have gone through years of testing, years of trial, years of sore division, years of reproving. God has tried and tested us. And I thought that it would be very good for us to see, nevertheless, lest we become sour and jaundice and bitter in our judgment of the church of Jesus Christ, I believe that it's important for us to see how God looks on the church. Not as so often you and I in our carnality look on the church. We must see the church through the lens of God's heart. We must not look at the church through our own human lives, eyes. My father was a man of few words, but I remember 
what he would say to me, he told me always, always be careful what you say and your attitude about the church of God. He did not say that because he was a man who wanted to cover sin or would not pray for the improvement of the church and the sanctification of the church. But he always taught me, you must see the church as God sees it. And you must love the church. And you must love this congregation to which God has joined. And this congregation, given the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this congregation, the object of God's eternal love. And without blush, you love her because God sings over her. We cannot say that we love God and hate the church. We cannot say that we love the risen Jesus Christ and do not love his people here assembled. This verse is a very striking verse. And I would ask you if you were aware of this verse. I was not very much aware of this verse. I would ask you, have you ever thought about this verse? And have you ever thought in your own mind what it means that God sings? And what does it mean that he sings over his church, his bride? This verse is unique in all of the scripture as far as I understand. There are 66 books in the Bible. There's only one verse which says that God sings. And there's only one object over which God sings. It's his church. There are other passages in the Bible that says that God rejoices over his people. Psalm 149 says the Lord takes pleasure in his people. There are verses in the Bible which tell us that God gives names for his church, names of endearment. He calls her Hephzibah, my delight is in her, Beulah, married one, Jeshuan, precious one. But there's only one verse that says that in the joy of his heart, he himself sings in that joy over the church. It is not only a unique verse, but it is extremely humbling. That's very humbling. He sings over me. He sings over us. Over this congregation. Over people. Like us. Yes. He sings over the redeemed church and over you, redeemed in the precious blood. And then I would point out to you yet, before we begin to delve into the passage, I would point out to you that the structure of verse 17, the structure of the verse is climatic, and I'd like to compare it to Apostles' Creed that we just confessed about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's going in an ascending scale. He arose the third day. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. He comes again in judgment. That will be his maximum, his ultimate glory. It's an ascending scale. So also, verse 17, if you see it, it's an ascending scale. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. Is there anything greater than that? He will save. He will rejoice over thee. Yes, greater. 
He not only saves, but he's filled with joy in himself when he does it. Is there anything greater than that? Well, yes. He will rest in his love. God himself is content and satisfied in the love that he has for his church. Well, is there anything greater than that? He will sing over you with joy. I call your attention then to the word of God which says he will sing over you, he will joy over you, he will joy over you with singing. And pointing out from the text that this is amazing, amazing song. And secondly, it is a song of salvation. And that finally, it's a wedding song. It's a love song. Listen to the words. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Jehovah's singing over his church tonight arises out of the joy in his heart that he has for the church. He expresses the joy of his heart by breaking forth into a song. He sings. He expresses in singing his joy. This song that he sings over the church is not a lament. It's not like the song that the captives in Babylon and that we sometimes sing, Psalm 137, when they require of us a song in captivity. How shall we sing in these troubles, we say? It's not a lament. It's not a battle song, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. But it's a song of joy, a song of pleasure. God takes pleasure in his church. He rejoices over his church, and in that joy, he sings. You sing from your heart and soul when you are filled with joy before God. So God also sings. There's a similar verse to this in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 32. Jeremiah 32 and verse 41, in Jeremiah 32, God is speaking his promises to his church and people that he's going to gather the church out of all countries, that they shall be my people, that he will give us one heart and one way that we fear him, that he will make an everlasting covenant with us. And then in verse 41, he says, Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart, and with my whole soul. When God says, with my whole heart and with my whole soul, I will rejoice, that's an anthropomorphism. He does not have a heart and soul as we do. But when we do something with heart and soul, we mean it. It's not simply mouthing words. It's not simply filling the air with noise. With all of his heart, not half-hearted. Think of it. The thrice holy God, the perfect God in his own being, the one who is pure within himself, the one who is righteous, just, and holy, in his heart, he sings joyfully over his church. He lifts himself up and prays as he considers his church. When he sees the church, the holy God 
things. This tells us the source of God's joy in singing in himself, in his own eternal will, in his own being, in which he purposed to glorify himself by saving a church in Jesus Christ. We, the source of this song then, is not ourselves, not us, of ourselves. We respond to God's song. We have a song to respond to him when he sings over us. Not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name give praise. Do we say concerning ourselves and concerning our congregation, well, of course, God sings over us over me. Of course. Especially if he would compare us to other churches. We have two worship services well attended. Certainly, if he's going to sing over someone, he would sing over me. We must not think that that is something we would never do that those thoughts in our hearts don't arise concerning ourselves or our congregation. God is speaking to a people, Jeremiah 7 verse 4, which said to him when he brought his word, they said to him, the people of the Lord, the people of the Lord, the people of the Lord are we. Why are you talking to us about sin? Well, if we would say that, then we need to remember what we read in verse 11 of the chapter where in the last part of that verse he says, For then, in the day of the Lord, I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. Because the Jerusalem was in there, you will no longer be haughty for that. No, he does not find the source of his joy and song in us but it comes from Him. It comes from His grace in His own heart through Jesus Christ. If you want to know the lyrics, the words, children, the lyrics of a song, the verse of the song, are the words of the song, if you want to know the words of the song that God sings over His church, you want to know you want to see those words, then you need to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, the verses 1 through 13. That beautiful passage, Blessed be God, our Father, who hath blessed us in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to say, the work of his grace, planned in eternity, and that all things were done to the praise of the glory of his grace, that he chose us, predestinated us freely, according to his own will, that he redeemed us in his Son, that he has given to us the abiding of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit. This is why he sings over the church, because of his grace, because of his eternal grace in his own heart, given to us through Jesus Christ. And that's why, follow me now, that's why those who love the doctrines of sovereign grace love the church. 
Anyone who loves sovereign grace must love the church. We may put it this way. All of God's love, His eternal, unchangeable, unmerited love, all of His grace, His powerful grace, His undeserved grace, all of His saving mercy converge on the church. This is amazing. I say again, he sings in his heart over us, the holy God, over me. We're almost tempted to say there's some mistake here, Pastor. There's something you you missed in this text. Does not God know what is under the surface in me? Yes, he does. Well, maybe what this is a reference then to is that uh, God is thinking now of his eyes upon the martyrs who suffered martyrdom and were burned for the truth. He sings over them. Yes. But he sings over us. Well, maybe, maybe we could apply this church to the days of the Reformation when men stood up so boldly, so filled with his glory, Yes, he sang over the church in the Reformation, but he sings over us. Well, maybe he's referring now to the church in India and in Myanmar and in North Korea as they're being put to death for him. Yes, he sings over them. Well, maybe this is speaking, here's the answer. He must be speaking only of the one holy Catholic church gathered around the throne, that we call the triumphant church. He sings about the triumphant church, but not the militant church. No. He sings over the church here. Verse 12. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and a poor people, and they shall trust in the Lord. He sings over the militant church as we're in battle against our sin and the world and our flesh. And we hear that song. We hear him singing his song of joy. We hear it in the preaching of the gospel. That's when the song is being sung and heard. Psalm 89, verse 15, Blessed is the people who hear the joyful sound. They shall walk in the light of thy countenance. When the gospel, when we come to church, that's why we're here. And the gospel is preached according to the command of God by the church through one who is sent. The song of God's grace and his love over the church in all of its richness, is being heard. That's why we must preserve this pulpit. That's why this pulpit must be given. We must ask for men who will expound to us in faith all the truths of the Holy Scripture and who receive the Holy Scripture as God's Word. That's why that's so crucial. Because we hear the song that we need to hear. That is not played in this world. The song of God's love over his church.
when we peer down a little bit from our text in verses 18, we find something yet more amazing, or we find something equally amazing, that he's singing really over his church, that he is busy sanctifying. The church is described in verse 18 in two ways. It's described as the place where they love to worship. And it's described as the place where there are those who are burdened when the church is troubled. Verse 18, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee to whom the reproach of it, the church, Zion, was a burden. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly. Why are they sorrowful? They're sorrowful because the solemn assembly can't be held. The times of worship in the Old Testament that were stated, the solemn assembly, when they were in captivity in Babylon, those worship services could not be held. They're sorrowful. When the worship of the church can't be held, it grieves them. And still more, when the church is under reproach and when there's trouble in the church, it's a burden to them. It's a burden upon their heart. When the church goes through trouble, they don't just slough it off and say, whatever. No, it's a burden to them because they love the church. It is over these, by God's grace, those being sanctified, in the church being sanctified over whom he sings. He doesn't sing over those or a church that says going to church and the church is a drag. And they have to drag themselves to the church. He's not singing over those who are not troubled when the church is troubled. Like the children of Edom, they say, raise it. Raise it to the ground. Destroy it for all we care. But those who love the church. Though in short, he sings over the church as he sees her in his grace in Christ and, and as he sees his grace in them, sanctifying them both as he sees it in his own eternal love and grace, he sings, and as he sees that grace operating in the hearts of the members of the church. Now the argument, now we need to get the argument of the text. Therefore, church, believer, don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Verse 16. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thy hands be slack. Why? Because of verse 17. Because Jehovah, what, what the church is to Jehovah, don't be discouraged. In other words, because of this, don't fear. Because he sings over us, don't be discouraged about the future. Don't fear the enemy. 
Don't fear the trials and the struggles that must surely come for the people of God. The heartaches. The first says to us, fear will zap our strength. Don't let your hands slack, fall down to the side. When our hands are droopy, we are discouraged, we are defeated. We can't go on. Don't be that way. But instead, be confident, be assured in the God, in our God, who delights in his church. And so now we remember the words of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8 verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That means God's joy over you, knowing the joy of God over his church, is our strength. That's our strength as elders and deacons in the church to do our work. To continue in that work faithfully. To continue faithfully because the Lord is pleased with his church. That's our strength as parents in this wicked day to bring up our children. Is it possible to bring up children godly in this wicked age? We become discouraged. Can we do this? We become perhaps discouraged over sometimes the difficulties of maintaining our school. Don't be discouraged. Be confident. We become discouraged as a young person in our spiritual walk and life. We become filled with anxieties. Don't. He sings. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. This is an amazing song. It's a salvation song. It's rooted in God's salvation of his church, of us. And so we read, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. And then in a moment, at the conclusion of our service, we're going to sing from 317, salvation's joyful song is heard where'er the righteous dwell, for them God's hand is strong to save and doeth all things well. Now when Zephaniah is speaking here of salvation in our text, then the Holy Spirit is speaking of salvation in a little different sense than we're used to or accustomed to. And if I were to ask the Heidelberg Catechism students here tonight, the essential students, if I were to ask the simple question, would you give me a biblical definition of salvation? Then I trust you would simply say, salvation, that's deliverance from the deepest, greatest evil, which is sin. Not social injustice, not what other people have done to me, but sin, my sin. And salvation is deliverance unto the highest possible glory and good. And that's not having things my way and being admired by others, but it's the presence and the love of God, that salvation. And that's true. That's what it is.
But when we look at the passage, especially verses 18 through 20, Zephaniah is describing salvation a little differently. He's saying to us that that salvation includes three things. Salvation of the church includes, number one, when God deals with the enemies of the church. He says in verse 19, I will undo all them that afflict thee. I will judge them. He's referring there to Babylon, that God would judge that nation which afflicted his church. In other words, salvation is when God deals with the world, with the devil, with the false church. When he deals with them, he's saving the church. And so the Belgic Confession, in Article 37, the Last Judgment, puts it this way, that in that day of glory, their innocence, the church's innocence, shall be known to all, and they shall see the terrible vengeance which God shall execute on the wicked who most cruelly persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. Salvation is when God, the salvation of the church, includes God's judgment upon the world, the world that opposes his church, the world that shakes its fist against him. Number two, salvation is when God gathers his church to himself. Verse 20, at that time, that time of judgment, final glory, I will bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, I will gather you. So when God is gathering the church out of all lands, he's saving the church. That's part of the salvation of the church. He judges the world. And he surely saves the church out of the world. And that's why we are to have a zeal for missions. And then number three, God says, I save the church when I give them a name and a praise. Verse 20, a name and a praise among all the people on the earth. In other words, when he vindicates the church. The church that has been ridiculed, mocked, hated by the world tonight. God will save the church in the presence of the world. He will vindicate her and give her a name and praise as his bride. God's salvation of the church is when he judges our enemies, when he gathers the church from all, the world, all nations, and when he vindicates the church. Now we ask the question of the text, exactly how does God do that? How does he save the church? The answer is, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He saves by being in the midst of the church. God stands right center in the church. God can't be separated from the church. God is in the midst of the church. And he saves. And he judges. And he gathers. 
and he preserves. But now when we think of those words, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. When you think of those words, what do you think? In the midst of thee, God in the midst of us, what do you think? We think of Jesus. We think of Emmanuel, God with us. So how does he save? He saves the church through his own son in the flesh. By giving his son in the flesh in Bethlehem and giving his son to the cross and giving his son to be raised from the dead, he saved the church because in Jesus Christ, he is in the midst of the church as the one who has come to save the church, to make a full atonement for the church. And then in the midst of thee doesn't simply mean in the middle, like you're sitting in the middle of the, of the pew, but in the midst means, when he's in the midst of us, he means united to us. He's not just in a center position, but he's united to us so that we are members of his body, joined to him and receive our life from him as our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, because he's in the midst of us, he will save us. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save the church. God entrusted from all eternity, but also in time, all things into the hands of his son. And what he entrusted into the hands of his son was the church. The church that he had ordained and chosen. Make it personal. He entrusted into the hand of his son. You. As his child. He will save. He is mighty. And he is in the midst of us. Temptations may assail us. Discouragements may come to us. In the last days, hatred is going to come to this church, kept faithful by God, to you and your life. You're going to go through many struggles, as Christ's will is also to purify you and to conform you to his image. He will save you, for he is mighty. And therefore, Back to the argument of the text. This is God's message to us tonight. To Jerusalem. To Zion in the Old Testament. To Loveland. Tonight. To you. As a believer in Christ by grace. Don't be afraid. You must not be afraid. This is the message that the elders and the deacons must bring to the church. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. A young man in our church, God-fearing young man, nine months ago came down with an immunization disease that they cannot figure out. He began to lose weight, headache, couldn't work, couldn't eat. He just suffered with headaches and pain. 
went to all kinds of doctors to try to figure out what was going on. Finally, he went to another test, a test which would be somewhat painful, which would be probed and picked. And he was discouraged for weeks before this and very much discouraged. And the, the, the nurse who was going to prepare him for the test could see that. And she said to him, Are you a man of faith? Are you a man of faith? And he told me that God used that simple question to remind him to say, by God's grace, yes. And I will not be discouraged, and I will not be despondent, and I will not say to him, your way is too much for me. I can't do this anymore. Are we men of faith? Are we women of faith? Young people of faith? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Do God's work. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. Let not your hands become slack. No slack hands in the church. Finally, we see that this song is a song of a wedding. It's a love song. The singing that is being referred to in the text is the wedding song in those days, those among the Hebrews, among the Jews, and it was the song that was sung, listen carefully, by the bridegroom, the man, to his bride-to-be. When they would speak their vows in the wedding, the man would sing to her of his love, and not empty words, but of his vows, and of what he promised her. He would sing to her of what he was promising. The love of God that he promised to her. He would sing to her. Now God compares himself to that. We find that in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 4 and 5. God speaking to the church, Thou shalt no more be called forsaken, neither shall thy land be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah. My delight is in her, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and the land shall be married. Verse 5, for as a young man marries a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, sings over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. This is a wedding song. The church, as the bride of Christ, God sings over her. He's not embarrassed. He does not blush. He sings his vows to us. Now do you say, as a young person tonight, 
No one notices me. No one delights in me. You say concerning hurts that you have received, they cannot be healed. Do you say concerning your future, it's very dark? Do you say concerning sins which God has brought you to repentance that you committed, do you say those are too awful? They can't be forgiven. Do you say that your problem, your burden tonight, is insolvable. God says, he sings the song of betrothal and the song he gives his vows from his heart of faithfulness to you. You experience that song right now. He does not text it to you. He does not speak it from another building. He says, to, he says it to you right now by his Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word. I rejoice in you. I sing over you in my son, Jesus Christ. May this word of God be the strength of our hearts. May we not be afraid and may we not fear in this knowledge that Jehovah sings over the church. May God give us here the desire to hear this song in the church through the faithful preaching of the gospel and to hear the sweet sound from the pulpit of God's sovereign, amazing, saving grace. May he drive away from us all fears day after day and give our hearts to rest. May he make our hands spiritually strong in his work. And may we delight in him, love him, and rejoice in him who so marvelously and so graciously delights in us. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. It is profound. We cannot get to its depth. But it is sure and it is true. It is sealed to us in the resurrection of Christ. The Lord takes pleasure in His people. And so, O Lord, we pray that we may rest upon these words and that we may go forth in strength and in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.